Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Today, I am delighted to welcome Paul Wright to Life Beyond the Numbers. Paul, you're so welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to guest on this podcast. Um, I listen to uh, many of them myself and, um, yeah, delighted to take part. That's brilliant. And in a way, we are going to be talking a little bit about your life beyond the numbers, but we'll also talk probably a bit about life and the numbers. As yeah. you're, you're the first numbers person I've had on for quite a while. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah well. and not not by design. It's just the way it goes. Yeah, numbers have seemed to have followed me around. I think over the years. So, <laughs> and that's no bad thing. <laughs> well, one of the things that stands out for me when I read your LinkedIn posts is you talk a lot about purpose, and I wondered if that was something that's always driven you, Paul. Probably not, um, or more so over the over the years. You know, early in my career, I didn't think about purpose. I only really thought about ambition. In fact, even before then, I mean, it took me until I was 27 until I decided that I wanted to be an accountant. And so until I was 27, I didn't even have ambition. You know, I didn't really have anything. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was a sales and marketing graduate, and it just took me that that long to find really what I wanted to do. And then having seen finance teams and finance work, decided that's where I wanted to go. That's where I thought that I could make a difference. And so I had ambition. I soon gathered the type of work that I really enjoyed, which was working with, with businesses as a business partner. And I knew where I saw myself in five years, in, in 10 years, but it, it wasn't really you know, purpose. I would say, well, no, I'm just trying to advance really and to make the most of my, my my career I would say when I became a, a head of finance of uh, my previous or, or a previous employer I started to think a little bit more about purpose I mean first of all you know, what is purpose it's a feeling of having a reason for what you do that's, that's mm. how, would, how you would define it and I started doing a lot of mentoring particularly of early careers not just finance staff but early careers, particularly across a wide range of functions. And I got a lot of satisfaction out of that because I was starting to not just make an impact myself, but I was trying to make an impact through other people. Um, and so, so that was probably when I first felt that what I was doing had purpose. Whereas now purpose matters a lot to me. And I think a lot about it. What's the difference? 
what changed? Is it age? I asked the question the other day, is purpose a luxury? You know, you reach a certain point, point in life, you know, when you're 21, it's like, well, I just want to earn as much money as possible. Is it a sort of a luxury that comes later in, in your career? And there might be something in that. But then I think about other professions, nurses, teachers, carers, charity workers, who enter their profession with a clear sense of purpose when they're 18, 19, whatever. And so they have that sense of purpose right at the start. You would like to think, my wife, Nicola, is a head teacher. Okay, yeah. Great example. So she's been a teacher in the teaching profession for 30 years. And she has and has, has always had a sense of, of purpose about what she does. And when I think about what Nicola has achieved through, through her career, starting off as a teacher and then a deputy head teacher and then a head teacher, and all of the children who've been through her teaching and, and guidance, and some of them probably have children of their own now. What a legacy to leave. And she's a busy head teacher dealing with all this stuff that you have to you know, deal with it, your academization and, and the impact of, of COVID and inspections and, 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 wow. and all that stuff. But, you know, at some point she'll look back and what an impact to have. And, and you know, I, I feel that same sense of, I suppose, admiration, really, and wanting to, in some small way, have a similar I can't compare myself to Nicola, to, to be quite honest, in terms of impact on other people's lives, but to have a sense of purpose in the way that uh, she does. So I'm right now I'm considering a balance of paid and unpaid activities. I'm, I've just accepted a position on the board of a Birmingham-based charity. I'm hoping to become a school governor in the near future. And uh, the last thing is a bit more of a hobby, but... Um, considering a, um, or not considering I've, I've started a, a bit of creative writing master classes so which is uh, something that I've always wanted to do but that's a hobby oh for now it is anyway who knows <laughs> exactly exactly and we'll come back to that maybe a bit later because there's so many things in there I mean the mentorship I'm interested in did you choose who you would mentor or did it just kind of naturally come about Paul that people came to you and you started to to help them in their career, say? Well, great question, because it was a bit of both, but it was more organic. I remember that previous employer, we had a mentoring scheme, and you can imagine a grid where you've got mentees alongside and mentors on top, and every, and there's a one-to-one -one relationship, and selected thoughtfully for how that would work best. And I had five, but four of them were off-grid, if you want to call it that. <laughs> 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 and it would typically be people who would talk to me and, and just say, look, Paul, can we have a chat? And no one described it as mentoring. We would have a chat and if it would work, then we would have another chat. And the next thing you know, you fall into mentoring because the mentee would get a lot of satisfaction, you know, help out of it. And I would get a lot of satisfaction about the role that I was playing. And similarly, I was the beneficiary as well. I remember before I became the head of finance at my last role in industry, and I remember having a similar relationship with one of the members of the leadership team. And we would go for a coffee and I would talk about careers and 
I was thinking about how I had a line of sight myself towards the leadership team. And he was my mentor and nobody ever labelled us that. And that's when I think it works best because you're not sacrificing anything to do it. You do it because you want to do it, not because somebody's told you to do it. It's true, isn't it? Knowing yourself, seeking that out and then having it met by the other person who's willing to give their time. There's something very rewarding about that for both people. Because I think when you're a mentor or a mentee, you're still learning. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think with mentoring, it's, it's like, don't try too hard with mentoring, create the conditions and culture in an organization in which mentoring can flourish on its own. Yeah. I think one of the dangers sometimes is, is that it can be the same person who everybody goes to for mentoring as well. Cause often there's like one person who or a couple of people who maybe stand out more than others and who are more helpful. I don't know. There's a danger. <laughs> I guess there is that danger. Yeah. Yeah. But it but it's a nice, it's a nice place to be as well. And and the other thing, just it was interesting while you were talking about purpose, and I was going back in my own head, what was my purpose when I joined Deloitte and studied to be a chartered accountant? And there wasn't one other than being able to earn money and be financially independent and all of that. But I do remember then I worked in Australia for a couple of years and I came back to Ireland to work and I changed because there was a great work-life balance type ethic in Australia. And when I came back, I was like, I can't get back into this rat race. I can't go back to Dublin. And my purpose became about not making money for other people mm-hmm. <laughs> that if I was going to do it I was going to work in an NGO or work for myself I'm not sure that was a purpose as such either but I guess it evolves as you question where life is going and where life is taking you but for finance people I saw your post about working for Medtronic for example and how do you yeah, does the purpose infiltrate your decision or your career choice or does it come in the job you're in? Yeah, I was really fascinated about Medtronic in particular. I mean, I've never worked for the company, wasn't really familiar with Medtronic until I had some sudden and and serious heart problems in, in 2018. Long story short, I was fitted with a pacemaker. And I started to look into, as well as trying to sort of adapt to this little bionic you know a little extra help that I was that my heart was getting I looked more into the device itself and where it had come from and who made it and and I read an autobiography of a guy called Earl Bakken who was the inventor of the the wearable battery operated external pacemaker and he was co-founder of Medtronic and my pacemaker is a Medtronic device and so I follow the, the, the CEO I follow the company on, on LinkedIn I follow their their fortunes and and I feel a particular as you would expect sort of connection with the company and when I was thinking about purpose it did make, make me wonder about 
Does the Medtronic accountant, if they're asked what they do, do they describe that as closing the books um, or as something a bit more profound, such as enabling Paul from Solihull, England, to live a full life? And I like to imagine that it's the latter, but I, I didn't know. Am I just romanticising? <laughs> do I need to believe that the accountant or the salesperson or, or the, the admin assistant or whoever in, in Medtronic feels that sense of, of purpose, that it's reciprocated, if you like, you know, in some way. And you very kindly connected me with John Barrett, who's a, a senior finance manager in, in Medtronic. And John very kindly uh, replied and said that the, that the mission of the company truly inspires the extraordinary anyone who works at Medtronic can quote the mission and we all come to work every day to alleviate pain restore health and extend life and I've just read what John uh, replied to me and that mattered to me because of I think your sense of, of, of purpose is influenced by things that happen in your life and, and in your work so yeah so that was uh, something that I was glad to hear uh, mm. from John. Yeah, I went to school with John. Oh, so that's how know? I know him. Yeah, I see. <laughs> we studied accountancy together in school <laughs> many years ago. It's, but it's funny. There's there's other examples. Like um, I was thinking about this the other the other day. Jurgen Klopp, the football manager. I remember reading an article about him a couple of years ago, and he and he was talking about one of the members of his staff, and and I can't remember you know who it was. It might have been. A, bus driver or a groundsman and this member of staff was asked what they do in front of Jurgen Klopp and they'd said oh I look after the pitches or I drive the bus or I prepare the kits and Jurgen Klopp said no if anybody asks your role is to help Liverpool Football Club win trophies and I thought wow whether you're a Liverpool you know fan or not if you're inspired by that and you can come to work every day inspired by that mission then you're really on to something and uh, there's a nasa documentary somebody famous visited nasa i don't know if it's, it was a really long time ago like jfk or someone and he meets the person sweeping the floor and says to them what do you do here and the guy responds by saying i help put people on the moon <laughs> And that's it, isn't it? Have you read Legacy by James Kerr? No. So that's about the New Zealand football team, the All Blacks. And you talked about your wife and legacy. And, and I guess that's what he's talking about as well. And, and the idea is when you join the All Blacks, by the time you've left, the shirt is in better condition than when you joined. And his philosophy, which I think was is brilliant, is better people make better rugby players yeah and and it's all about working on a team and what you're going to leave behind and he's got 15 leadership lessons in there that are nice to reflect on and I always think the world of sport lends itself so well to the world of business because we can relate yeah yeah absolutely and I remember the first uh, job I, I had was in automotive and it was a, a challenged, ultimately challenged automotive business. Great experience of manufacturing in, in particular. I always thought that I would make more of an impact there if I was actually interested in cars. 
You know what I mean? And I'm not, I'm not a petrol head. But if you're interested in, in cars, then go and get a, a job at Jaguar Land Rover because, you know, it's not just your skills, your passion for what the, the, the company is doing will take you, you know, a long way, I think. I agree. That makes a huge amount of sense is, yeah, if your interest as a child or whatever was in anything, go and seek it out in the world when you're working rather than just finding a job. Yeah. Because you need a reason to get out of bed every morning. (laughs) I always think. Jaguar Land Rover or or other car companies, of course. But of course, I chose that one because midpoint between where you are and where I am, halfway down the M40. We've got the Mini (laughs) around here as well for people, I think. Yeah. (laughs) But Paul, you're in good health now. That's 2018, four years ago or so on. The pacemaker is doing its job. Oh, absolutely. It's an uh, it's a miracle of, of modern science. It's like flicking a switch. Wow. And oh, uh, uh, absolutely. And now I'm back to as good a health as I had before this sort of sudden series of unfortunate events. Well, that's really good to know. Right. And I mean, that's had to have an impact personally and professionally on your life. I think it's you have a different perspective, or I've gathered a different perspective about coping with adversity or bouncing back from adversity from a health point of view. And what I try and do is to try and share that experience with other people to try and help other people. You know, for example, I talked about, about mentoring before and, and trying to help younger members early careers. And, and have them benefit from my experience. And I think about exams. And, uh, you know, I remember taking my SEMA exams. And when I took the exams, it was like four, four, four stages, four papers, 16 papers. And I, I passed my exams, but I failed four along the way and I bounced back from that. And so I try and talk to people about exams and about preparing for success, but don't be afraid of failure. It's only failure if you stop. A couple of years ago when I was in between roles and I was part of a fabulous, um, what we call hashtag open to work community of people helping each other. And uh, there were lots of people who, was, when I joined that community, would use their experience to help me. And in turn... I tried to then pay it forward to others in that community and still do because my experience, if it's not shared, is just hindsight. It's just what would I have done? What would I have done differently? And I think from a health point of view, it's it's the same. I'm a part of a couple of online pacemaker stroke heart health communities. And you know, asked me about my sort of journey from being unwell to being, you know. As in as good as health as I've been for forever, really. But there's a lot of people who are who are just starting out in that same storm that I was in in 2018, and they're first of all they're afraid because they don't know what's wrong, and then there's like a cycle in, in my experience, a cycle where you go from being afraid to you know that something's wrong, and then you really are down 
you're, you're, you're down, you know, and then you bounce back from, from that. Once you realize that, you know, you're on the road to, to recovery and that there's every reason to, to be hopeful. So I, I'm a cyclist. Okay. Not a, not a, I was going to say not a proper cyclist. <laughs> More proper than me. You have a bike. <laughs> I go on my bike probably once a week if I'm lucky. I know that makes me a cyclist. And, and I would try and tell others in the, uh, my pacemaker community who are thinking that life's never going to be the same again. And I would say, do you know what? This last week I went out and did 50 miles on my bike for the first time since being fitted with a pacemaker. And that's not to say that everybody in the community is going to be able to get on the bike and go and do 50 miles on a bike, but it, it's trying to send the message to others to say that um, things will get back to normal or you can get back to normal. You know, a pacemaker is it's not a death sentence or even a life sentence, it's a lifeline. And my role is to send the ladder down for other people and, and and that gives me a lot of satisfaction whether that's heart health helping people who are going through the trauma of, of looking for work or people who've failed exams or or are struggling with with exams i've been there and in all of these instances i've managed to bounce back from adversity or from something failing and uh, yeah i hope that that will help somebody else I have no doubt that it will, Paul. And I think having I've not had anything as serious as that, but having had setbacks in life and things happen, I think always realising you're not alone is a huge weight off because the, the tendency it may be in that shock piece or that down piece that you talked about is to think I'm the only one going through this and when you find a community like you say when people share openly in that community it shows you that actually others have done it and that gives great hope and inspiration it is and and, and it's trying to send a message about two steps forward one step back one step back two steps forward and, and every journey is is different as yeah. well yeah you find your pace so to speak, and you find your way and yeah, but there are people who can help you and guide you. Yeah, absolutely. As people helped me, whether it was in the LinkedIn community when I thought, okay, how do I look for work? How do you do that? Um, what's the strategy? Or how do I get on the leadership team? Mm. Um, or how do I live a normal life again with this thing rattling around in my chest? And people... And I can think of these, you know, all of these people now, you know, people have helped me and now it's time for me to pay it forward. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Brilliant. And well, we've talked a little bit about looking for work and I always like a, a unique angle to uh, life beyond the numbers. <laughs> Maybe this one is that age is just a number. Yep. And you can look for work at any point in your life. Yeah, yeah. And so what was it like after 18 years in one company to suddenly find yourself in the job market, Paul? It was quite tough. Well, it was surprising for me, really. I mean, first of all, those 18 years, 
I had a fabulous career, fabulous. I thoroughly enjoyed it and wouldn't change a thing. I rose to leading a, a large finance team, head of finance for, for UK sales. And the development opportunities that I was given and the support that I was given was, was you know, absolutely outstanding. And I, I achieved everything that I could possibly have hoped to within the constraints, particularly geographical constraints that uh, we, we placed upon ourselves. Uh, and then when I left, which was 2018, and I thought I could just walk into another job because I'd had a great career and thought, and thought everybody would want to employ me. And I was wrong. And I've been there for, for 18 years and, and I found myself competing with other candidates who also had 18 years experience, but they had three years experience in six different companies. And... And so on my CV, it, it looked very, I knew automotive, I knew energy, and, and that was pretty much it. I had no FMCG, I had no services, I had no public sector, I, I had nothing like that. And, and I was reflecting on this afterwards and thought that, that if you value job security somewhat perversely, it's better to move around a little bit. Now, I wouldn't change what my career for the world because, as I say, it was fantastic. And I had a fantastic career. I just didn't see that part coming, really. And so it was, it was more of a challenge. Maybe my expectations were a little sort of, what's the word, exaggerated, I suppose. Yeah, but it's a really interesting point because i would imagine you you moved jobs a number of times or roles i should say but moved roles and responsibilities a number of times in that 18 years i did and then also how do we judge experience yeah well that's how i saw it that i'd moved a different roles always developing, not always finance roles as well. And so I thought that, that I was well-placed, but then you're competing in, in the job market where it's only oh, you must have F FMCG experience. And well, I haven't, well, that rules you out, you know? So, and I was, oh, right, okay. Didn't, uh, didn't really see that coming. It's hard, isn't it? Because I suppose our CVs are... I don't know, they're just like a snapshot of the roles that we've had and the success in that roles, whereas our experience is way more than that. You've talked about setbacks and failures and all of those kind of things. That's what makes a person more adaptable, more resilient, all the type of skills that, that employers look for. Yet... The CV is a really difficult place to put that across. It is. It is. And that was just a sort of short term, you know, uh, thing mm. since then I worked in practice and, and uh, most recently in practice, working with lots of SMEs from a whole range of different uh, businesses, whether that's uh, manufacturing or, or services or whatever, the whole wide range of services. So suddenly I've gone on my CV from having automotive and energy to having sort of tapped into a whole multitude of businesses and, uh, and industries. That's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's very cool. It also allows you a chance to see 
which industry might I prefer if I were to take a full-time job again in an industry? You kind of get to shop around a bit. Yeah, you, you do. You get an insight quite high level into lots of different uh, businesses. No two days uh, are the same when you're working in that type of business, which is hugely enjoyable. Mm. That reminds me of my auditing days because... It was like that. We went business to business to business and you got exposure to a wide range of different companies very early on in your career. I suppose, yeah, it's the chicken and egg thing often, isn't it? It's how do you get experience <laughs> for that job? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure anybody's ever really answered that question uh, satisfactorily. I think we're all trying to answer that one. <laughs> yeah, that might be an interesting question to explore, actually. <laughs> So, Paul, now you've set up your own company and you've, well, maybe you'd explain it, actually. There's no point in me talking about it. Yeah, I'm trying to find a, a balance of, of paid and unpaid activities at, at the moment. I'm doing some, what you would call part-time FD work, subcontracted uh, from an accounting practice, whilst at the same time, I've been accepted onto the board of a Birmingham-based charity, hoping to become a, a, a school governor. So try to build up a portfolio of paid and unpaid activities, the, all of which part of me trying to do more of what I really enjoy and what I'm good at. And, and so we'll, we'll, see where that, we'll see where that goes. So it's enjoyable and lots of change at the moment. So we'll, uh, we'll see where that goes. And would that be a key to success for you, Paul? Like, what is success in your eyes? In terms of keys to success, you know, I was having to think about if I was to sort of summarise the 30 years or however long I've been at work, what are my keys to success? And I think there's probably two. And one of them is about being brave in your career choices. I'll give you an example of that. When I was in industry and I was working in finance, as you would expect, and I was invited to take a supervisory job working with key accounts in sales. My first reaction was a bit scary, isn't it? I'm an accountant, sales. <laughs> And you try and find a reason to say, to justify saying, saying no. And saying yes was the best thing I ever did. It gave me field experience, which is a useful stepping stone, no, an essential stepping stone to becoming a member of the SLT. So Richard Branson said, just say yes and then worry later about how you're going to do it. So just lean in, say yes, and, and just do it. And it's never as scary as you think it's going to be. It's not. And whoever's inviting you to do the role sees something in, in you. And they've got skin in the game as well. So if you mess up, everybody looks bad. So, so say yes. Um, so that will be the first thing. And I think the second thing, which is about leadership, is to just be yourself. And that sounds a bit, a bit too straightforward, I suppose. But I have a think about when I first became a finance supervisor. And I would start to try and behave like a finance supervisor rather than just sort of gently easing myself into being a finance supervisor. And 
And I would start to imitate. That was a mistake for, for any emerging leaders. What I would say is look for other leaders whom you admire, particularly in the workplace. Watch what they do. And it always helps in order to be able to, if you're faced with a particular leadership challenge, is to say, what would that person do in this set of circumstances? But don't imitate that person. Just be yourself. My boss had a much more sort of harder style than I've got. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm a supervisor. I need to really crack the whip now. But that wasn't really me. And if you try and imitate, it's not sustainable. And you're not going to enjoy it. So it's, it's funny, you know, 30 years of, of work and 15, 20 years of being a supervisor. And, and then you say to me, so what have you learned? And I've just sort of learned to be myself. So it's a bit simple, isn't it, really? It just all comes down to that. Wish I'd, I wish I'd told my younger self that. 20 years ago. <laughs> that, well, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's a good one. Just because it's simple, it doesn't mean it's easy. And, and maybe early on in our careers, certainly for some of us, and I can say this for myself, I, maybe I just didn't really know who I was or lived up to who I thought I was meant to be as opposed to who I am. And it's easy to get sucked into that. Even when you join... A workplace, it's almost like you put on a uniform, isn't it? If you're wearing a suit even or what the dress code is, there's all of these signals to you to behave in a certain way. And I think being yourself is also a brave act. So it's you nicely tie two together. You need to be brave and say yes to opportunities, but you need to be brave and put yourself forward. Yeah, and, I, and that's not the same as being, you know, rebellious in, in any way. That's just being authentic and, and true to yourself. And ultimately, that will work out, in my experience. Absolutely. And it's knowing your values then as well, Paul, isn't it? And I often think of that when it comes to people working in finance in particular, because when my values were being encroached upon, by people who maybe didn't get the integrity and things like that at times, that's when you're tested as well. And you need to be yourself and brave too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and having a sense of what those, what those values are. And yeah, it goes back to you know, finding organizations where there's a, a meeting of your values and an organizational culture is that's where it's sustainable, I think. Yeah, well, that's the sweet spot. It I, is. I spent my I spent my life searching for that. <laughs> <laughs> and then decided to work for myself. So, Paul, we touched really early on about creative writing. Tell yeah. me what what's been the inspiration for that one? Well, that's, I mean, that is a hobby, although I do sort of say that with a bit of a twinkle in my eye because, who, you know, who knows, but it is a hobby. But in all seriousness, I have to think about things that I like to think that I'm good at. I don't know, don't know how good, maybe, maybe not that good at all. I don't know, but, but I don't do enough of. And one of the other things is about, I always used to enjoy doing, I say used to, 
I still enjoy doing presentations. I enjoy standing up in front of a room of people. I don't do it very much now for obvious reasons over the last couple of years. But also I did lots more of that when I was in industry. I'd love to find more opportunities to, to do more of that. Because, and nine, to nine out of every 10 people you, you would speak to would say that's their worst nightmare. And I'm the one. I like it. You know, I enjoy it. I, love it. I come alive <laughs> and I really I really like standing up in front of a you know group group of people so and with creative writing I, I do a bit of writing on on LinkedIn but it's not creative writing but it, it's just me just talking about whatever happens whatever's in my head when I woke up really and it's totally non-strategic doesn't really have a, an end, end in mind but I like writing and I thought well I'd like to sort of explore that a little bit more. So I'm taking a few masterclasses. I've got the, I've created the time and the flexibility. And, uh, and yeah, I've got, uh, you know, one or two ideas in my head. And I might be rubbish, and um, but that's okay. If I, if I have a go and find out that I'm rubbish, that's all right. I'll settle for that. That's okay. But what I don't want to do is not have a go. I don't want to look back in, you know, whatever, 20, 30 years and go, well, yeah, you were going to start, or you started a little bit of writing and you never finished it. So, uh, oh well, you know, so, so let's, let's see. So w- watch out for my rubbish manuscript appearing on, you know. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I find your, your posts really draw me in. I think you have a very natural turn of phrase that's quite engaging and makes me think and, and I really like that. I, there's a real human element to your writing and creative. I mean, <laughs> I love Ceylon Silver Girl. That stands out for me, that that post about your mom and the records oh. and football. You see, like things stay in my head that you've written. And that's for me, that's that's certainly not rubbish. That's way up there. <laughs> there's plenty of rubbish out there, Paul. Plenty <laughs> of rubbish. <laughs> but I don't think you're contributing rubbish in any way, shape or form. I always think of the Maya Angelou quote. People don't remember what you say. They don't remember what you did. But they remember how you made them feel. And I think when you can invoke feelings into writing, then Wow. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like such a big step from writing small posts on, on LinkedIn to, to writing, let's say, a short story. If you have an idea, I, you know, I've got an, a, an idea and it's something that is, is meaningful to me. So, you, you know, it, it, there's, I have a, a, a sort of a, a I was going to say a concept, uh, you know, and a, a story. I have a story idea that has a meaning for me and has a sort of purpose. I don't sit here going, right, I write about another murder mystery or, I don't know. The accountant and the calculator. That's it. That's the one. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And I think that, look, you know, with, what is it, eight and a half, nine billion people on the planet, if it's meaningful to you, there's probably a few more people out there that it's meaningful to as well. You put it really well in one of your posts about saying, well, my story's never been told. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, particularly on LinkedIn, sort of underestimate how interested people are in people. And, you know, I I talked the other day about, that's a conversation I'd had with my my wife a few months ago about, if you think about something that you're going to put on, on LinkedIn, that it has to be sort of theoretical, 
analytical, and it's probably been done before. Just follow whatever the hashtag is. They, they, there you go. Somebody's talked about, you know, forecasting, cash flow forecasting, or something. Yeah, of course they are, and I've done the odd, the odd post like that. But if you're thinking about something that's happened in in your life or in your work and what you've learned uh, from that, then that's your story. Nobody's told that story before, but there's every chance that it's going to resonate with a lot of people. And and storytelling, you know, touches people, I think. And also if it doesn't, then that's okay. You know, you put exactly. A as long as you enjoy it and it brings yeah. you joy, that's what's important. And have you come across Toastmasters? No. Ah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you afterwards, but Toastmasters, okay. you can do creative writing and stand in front of a room of people and deliver it. Hmm, it might be oh, for you. I, I get the idea of what that is now, Toastmasters, right? <laughs> anyway, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you this morning. Thank you so much for making time to talk to me and our audience. I really appreciate the, the opportunity. I was, you know, flattered really that you would want to talk to me. I've listened in on some of the even the really early podcasts I was talking with a connection of mine that you know the other day who was one of your um, earliest I think who on, was that? Uh, on life beyond the numbers Michelle Michelle here. oh Michelle here yeah she was episode uh, number three yeah yeah and, and I said oh, I think I'm something like um 100 and, I don't know 90 it all sounds a bit like squid games isn't it? but you know 198 or something I don't know um, no, don't worry. I haven't got to 100 yet, Paul. You're still you're oh, still in the 80s. Oh, we're still in the 80s. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work. And the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.